0: Spotlight. I'm Rachel Barenbaum, author of A Bend in the Stars, and I am super, super excited to have Dariel Suarez here today. His amazing debut novel, The Playwright's House, just dropped. Dariel, tell me, what is the book about?
1: Uh, hi, uh, Rachel, thank you for having me. Um, so the book is setting, it's set in Cuba, contemporary Cuba, and it's about two estranged brothers whose uh, father becomes a political prisoner. He's a very famous theater director, and that throws the entire family into into a big drama of trying to help their father. And, and so the, it's just a family story, but it also deals with politics, with art, with the tensions of living in a place like Cuba. Uh, so, yeah, I think that's sort of the gist of it.
0: <laughs> and it's very close to home for you because you immigrated from Cuba to America in 97. Um, can you talk about how that uh, is in the book, right? How you've layered that into your story there.
1: Yeah, I think having grown up there sort of informed uh, some of the places that I wrote about, uh, you know, the, type of, the types of details that I ended up including in the book. Um, And this this was a way to sort of get back home, to to walk the streets of Havana again, to imagine some lives. Um, Not everything that happens in the book, obviously, is close to my life or related to me, but uh, but it was a way to reconnect with with, my city, my country, and sort of the cultural reality there and the political reality there. So yeah, it was quite a, a great thing to be able to travel back every time I sat down to write.
0: Before we delve into the politics, and there is a lot to delve into with the politics, I did want to say that I really felt like I was walking down the streets with you in Havana, um, and I just wanted to ask: like, were, were all of those descriptions, those amazing descriptions, from your memory, or were you looking up pictures? Right, so the book is set about twenty years ago, so you know, how did you remember or fill in those scenes so vividly?
1: Yes, uh, so it was a combination of I think a lot of it I did remember some of it I asked some of my family members or friends about folks who lived there longer and have, you know, better memories of of the city. Uh, I did look up videos and uh, photos and then I did get the opportunity to travel to Cuba right when I was finishing on my last revisions. Um, so I was able to compare a lot of what I wrote to the reality of it. And, you know, I'm happy to say that I felt like it was pretty close, but I did ended up, uh, ended up, uh, editing and revising a few things. Uh, but yes, it was a combination of memory and research and talking to folks, um, to make it as real as possible.
0: Amazing. I'm sort of imagining you looking through old family albums, right? (laughs) Like, yeah, a lot of,
1: a lot of that, a lot of online researching as well. I mean, you know, Cuba, even though a lot of, Folks think that has it hasn't changed much over the last 40, 50 years. Some of it really has. And, and I noticed that when I went back. So it was important to not just go off memory, but to actually, you know, look at the reality there a little bit more recently than when I left.
0: So you really wrote very vividly also about the surveillance state, right? Living in uh, under a government that um, could arrest you, right, or hold you. Um, uh, um, you know, with little evidence or reason, right, And very hard to um, find freedom under that sort of a regime. And I found it so hauntingly familiar to some of what we saw, um, right, under Trump and what was happening there. How did you dig into that? And, and what was it like to write about a surveillance state?
1: Yeah, so I started writing the book before the whole Trump thing, before he got elected, and so you know, in my mind, I was just writing about Cuba, and you know, it was—it's a slice of reality. It isn't—you know, this is not what happens to everybody in the in the island, but uh, it can happen, and it has happened to some folks. So that I was interested in showing that. But then, when you know, the, the Trump election happened and everything in this aftermath, I was sort of in the last revisions and in the process of getting the book out, and he felt eerily similar a lot of what I was hearing here, and and so it was. of interesting to have those conversations about you know some of this what we're hearing about the press and persecution of the press and propaganda and all of these things are the things that you normally associate with a, you know communist state or a different kind of state um so yeah it was it was a little bit surreal and jarring to sort of experience that in this country now that this country is perfect it has a lot of issues but you know before trump but um, but I think at the end of the day, it did feel sort of eerily similar. And, and you know, I, I don't think people understand sort of to what extent, you know, that was pretty horrifying to see and hear uh, as someone who grew up in a, in a place where, where it was very real and, and there were very real consequences to, to that kind of a, a regime.
0: Right. And you also just show how fragile democracy really is.
1: Yeah, yeah I, I think so. I think sometimes we lose perspective of that. And then, you know, our democracy is very fraught. It's not, you know, again, you know, American democracy has had its issues for many decades, depending on who you ask and, and who you are in your own experience. But uh, but this was more, vert, I think, and, and and some of the language is just very similar. You know, I would say not not as artfully delivered, <laughs> um, you know, just from an outsider, you know, Fidel uh, Castro was a better orator, much better and smarter Uh, dictator and horrible person but you know I think that that it was sort of strange to see that it was almost surreal at times of like wow that's something I would hear in in Cuba when I was growing up so um, yeah it was it was very strange and I hope history doesn't forget.
0: Yeah I hope not well that's why we write part of why we write. Right exactly. (laughs) Yeah Um, so this is also a story very much of brothers um, and brotherhood right Um, what it's like to grow up with your brother and experience. I don't want to put any spoilers out there. I'll just leave it at it's a story about brothers also. Can you talk about that?
1: Yes, I've always been attracted to sibling narratives. Uh, You know, there's something about sort of having, for the most part, a shared experience, and yet your personalities and the way you remember things can be so different. And there could be resentment, there could be a lot of, you know, a lot of things that come out of that family history, that shared family history. So I think in this case, it felt right to explore that um, and to sort of expand the scope of the book uh, through a family story that centered on the two brothers, but from there sort of, it sort of went outward as well, Um, and how different they are and what different worlds they live in and their different relationships to their parents. And so to me, it just felt like it was, a way to to expand the book and to open up to opportunities. And at time it got a bit unwieldy, and I had to do some revision um, in terms of choosing what you know what what scenes to keep, and you know, and, and having that relationship between the brothers. But it helped me anchor the narrative. I think as a writer to have that energy behind it. You know, this tension between the two of them, and and trying to hopefully at you know at a certain point aim toward redemption, if if there is you know if there is such a thing for them. So. So yeah, it was just that uh, attraction that I felt to that kind of a narrative and it felt like the right way to do it. And I just do everything through one character but to have a a larger cast and to have this brother as sort of the counterpoint.
0: And sisters, you also brought sisters into that. I did, I
1: did, I did. There were the sisters as well. and, And, you know, very, you know, in my mind very strong characters, very uh, characters have brought a lot of energy and life to the, to the story and really challenged and tested, you know, Sergei and Victor and, um, in many different ways. And it also felt, again, sort of a contrast or a counterpoint to their brother relationship and, and their inability to come to terms with things. Uh, so, again, those kinds of things open up the scope of the book and highlight some of the flaws for, for a lot of the characters.
0: Okay, so I have to nerd out with you for a minute because one of my favorite parts about your book um, is the fact that it is the playwright's house, right? So the father is this famous playwright. And um, this, of course, brings us to literary theory, right? And the question of a play within a play, whose gaze are we capturing, right? And were you thinking about all of those theory classes as you were writing this? And, and whose gaze is it?
1: Yeah, so I don't know that I was thinking so much about theory, I think I was thinking more about just art in general and I think performance art in in, in Cuba, it is, you know, theater, it is a a big deal. And I think, you know, uh, when I went back the last time I went to see a play with my wife and she was the one who got me into theater so all credit goes to her. Um, And and I think that, you know, there's so many social and cultural sort of layers that come out in theater that play out in a place like Cuba where you have to be careful what you say, and what you present, but they do find ways artistically to, for instance, take a classic and then make it a political statement you know, in a way that's subtle. And so that attracted me very much. And then what happens when the director sort of oversteps the boundaries and ends up in trouble. And so to me, that felt like a very uh, great world to explore from an artistic perspective. And in terms of gaze, I think for me, um, it should be anybody's case, honestly, you know, this island that many people maybe have a misconception of or only know a few things about, uh, which tend to be more either, you know, exoticized or romanticized. Um, I wanted to sort of hopefully break through some of that and sort of show sort of the day-to-day reality for a lot of these lives a lot of these people. And so, yeah, that was sort of more of the thinking for me. It was a little bit more grounded. It was a little bit more, you know, the reality of the art world and what that means in a place like Cuba. Uh, so the, hopefully folks got a glimpse into that world. But yeah, I, you know, the, hopefully there are other layers and other things that readers can take with them about that, you know, the the world within a world or a gaze within a gaze in terms of who's telling the story, who's the audience, who's the narrator. Um, and it was fun to to sort of dig into a lot of that.
0: Yeah, I mean, you've really given us, the readers, so many different levels and layers to look at. It, it It's amazing. I mean, I loved it. And that's when you know, right, you've hit something when you start having readers asking you questions that you're like, oh, I didn't think about that. Really. Yeah, exactly. It's always <laughs> right? fun
1: when that happens. I, I love it. You know, yeah. I'll steal it. Then the next interview, I'll be like, yeah, yeah, I intended that.
0: Yeah. <laughs> oh, amazing. <laughs> All right, we have to talk about Grub Street because you are the Educational Director. I am a Grubby, a huge fan, an alumni of the Novel Incubator. Um, so tell me about Grub Street.
1: Yeah, so Grub Street is an independent creative writing center. Uh, it's been around for over 20 years now. I've been, I've been a part of it for seven years, I think. I started as an instructor and then joined the staff as a head of faculty and now as a Education Director. And, um, it's an amazing place where a lot of different writers from different backgrounds and lived experiences come together. Uh, you could be someone who's just trying out to explore, you know, do I wanna write? Or you could be someone very committed to a long-term project and you can find something at Grub. And I, I love that, you know, it's not academic, it's not the traditional way of uh, teaching. We're always rethinking the workshop models, always rethinking how to teach, how to be inclusive, how to really serve writers from every background. Um, and, and really serve them so to me it's just an incredible community of writers who are very supportive very open very generous you know it's it's not always what you find in some of these circles and you know to me it's been a gift to, to work there to teach there to be part of that community it's been incredibly yeah. supportive with this book and other other things I've done so I think that you know if you don't know about Grubster, you should be checking it out especially now that we're so easily Um, reachable online.
0: So what I'm dying to really ask you about Grub Street here is you have seen, right, thousands of students, hundreds of instructors. What is the biggest mistake that writers make?
1: Ah, that's a tough question. Um, (laughs) There are many mistakes I think we make, but I I think getting, being rushed, thinking that things will happen quickly, thinking that you take two Mm -hmm. classes and you're ready to publish, or thinking that Or getting discouraged if that doesn't happen you know thinking that you spend a year on a book and 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 you should be able to publish it then or find an agent then i think that writers need to understand that this is a process it's a craft it takes years to really you know get good at and 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 get to to a place where you can start seeing very tangible results that's been my experience has been the experience of pretty much every writer i know um you know and you know the whole idea of talent the whole idea of everything else is very subjective um, what's really more objective is the time and effort you put in. And the writers who I think end up breaking through are the writers who just stick with it, who just continue to learn, continue to grow, challenge themselves, surround themselves with dedicated folks. And I think to me, it's one of the things that I see the most is just the frustration that folks experience because it's like, I've had to revise this story two times and it's still not ready. And I'm like, two times? <laughs> you should see how many times I have to revise my work before I send it out. So uh, um, persistence, patience, and enjoying the process, I think it's, it would be my, my advice. It's, it's a marathon. It's not something that's going to happen overnight.
0: So what was the hardest part about getting this book published?
1: Um, I think just going through the submission process. You know, I was working with an agent previously who move, moved on from agenting uh, right at the end of our submission process. Um, and so for me, just going through that was very illuminating. I learned a lot about the publishing world. I got a lot of great sort of responses from editors, um, got close a lot of times with some big publishers, but It was a long time on submission. It was more than a year. Um, And then eventually I decided to submit it myself to to indie publishers. I had a choice of whether to find another agent or do that. And I went that route. And it ended up working out with Red Hand Press, who who are amazing. And it's been incredible working with them. Um, But I think for me, it was just that long road of, you know, it was a couple of years, you know, before I was able to find a home for it. Uh, which at times can get frustrating, you can get a little bit defeated. I believed in the book, I believed it was a good book, and editors were responding again very positively to it. But I think from a marketing perspective, folks, you know where to place it at times. It's an international book, it's not a book in translation, but it kind of can feel like that. So uh, it was just a learning experience, I think. And that that part of it, just being patient and not giving up on it and just seeing it the whole process through was great.
0: So glad and grateful that you're sharing the, you know, the ups and downs of your process, because I think so many writers, you know, look at the big, fancy, splashy stories where you see, right, someone wrote their book in a year and sold it for a million bucks, right, and they're in the New York Times list, but that doesn't happen in real life, right?
1: No, for every one of those, there's like hundreds of us who are going through this long, drawn-out process. There are folks whose first or second book don't sell or don't publish, right. and then the third book breaks through, and I think that, as writers, we have to understand, again, it's a marathon. You, you put your effort into a project, you move on to the next one. So right now I'm reading for this book. I'm excited to you know, talk about it, promote it, but I'm also writing another book. you know. And so my mind and heart is now sort of also being stolen by a different project. And so it is, oh, you're always sort of moving. you know. I, I tell my students often, whatever you're working on now, hopefully it's not going to be the last thing you ever write. you know? So also don't feel like all your stakes are put onto this one thing you're just learning how to be a better writer through this project. If it works out great, if it doesn't, it just makes you better for the next one. And maybe the next one will be a bigger success. So that's sort of how I think about it to, you know, and at the end of the day, as writers, we should just enjoy the process too. We should do it because we love writing and creating new worlds and all of this. So um, I honestly think that you have to sort of remind yourself of that.
0: Yeah, I think every writer that I've ever spoken to that is publishing a book has at least two or three in the desk that are never going to see the light of day.
1: Yeah. And, and that is, you know, I learned that when I was younger, I had a, a professor who said, you know, if you read a book that's 200, 300 pages long, imagine there are thousands of pages that that author wrote, whether for that book or other books that you never get to read, you know. And, and that's what taught them how to write those 200, 300 words that you really like. Uh, and then that stuck with me. It's like, oh, that's a good way of thinking about it. I'm going to produce a lot and not publish all of it, you know. <laughs>
0: I love it. Daryl, I could ask you questions for another hour, but we are out of time. Thank you so much for joining me. I love the book, The Playwright's House, making sell many, many copies. Thank you, Rachel.
1: This is awesome.